Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, once again, let me invite you to turn to the book of Genesis as we are continuing today this ongoing series of expositions through this first and foundational book of the Christian scriptures. It's so essential for our understanding of how God has revealed himself, for understanding who God is and for understanding who we are. And so uh, today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 4 and verses 1 through 15. Genesis 4 verses 1 through 15. Let me invite you as you're able, let's stand in honor of the reading and hearing of God's word. Beginning reading from Genesis 4 beginning in verse 1. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, thou shalt, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of of the earth and from thy face shall I be hid and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me and the Lord said unto him therefore whosoever slayeth Cain vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold and the Lord set a mark upon Cain lest any finding him should kill him. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of his word, and let us join again in prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, we give thee thanks again for allowing us to hear thy voice, thy voice as it speaks through thy word. 
you spoke in ages past to thy prophet Elijah in a still, small voice. Speak to us today through thy word. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In Genesis 3, last Lord's Day, as we looked at that passage, and I think the previous Lord's Day, we read about Paradise Lost. The pre-fallen world, which had been perfect, orderly, harmonious, all of that had been tarnished by the disobedience of mankind. And so we saw the fall, as we refer to it in Genesis 3. Now, as we turn and we look at Genesis 4, we see a continuation of the fall. And we see how the pace of it quickens and expands. In Genesis 3, we could say we saw the preeminent example of sin against God. God gave a command not for, for man not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and man disobeyed. Uh, disobeying God, a sin against God and against God's word. In Genesis 4, what we're going to see is also a sin against God, but also a sin against man. And so Genesis 3 Primarily sin against God. Genesis 4, sin against God and man. And the sin that is described here will later be articulated at Sinai as the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. Genesis 4 records the first murder. The first willful taking of the life of a fellow human being. Today, we have perhaps become callous to this. We live in a nation that looks the other way as each year thousands are sacrificed on the altar of Moloch through abortion. We watch videos of war and become indifferent to seeing the lifeless bodies of infants carried away from the rubble. But how shocking it was when man first lifted his hand in violence against another creature, a fellow man made in the image of God. Perhaps we don't really understand how striking it was for this first sin of this sort to be committed. When confronted, Cain would ask a question that's still worth pondering, his motives for asking it and what its greater implications are. Am I my brother's keeper? In examining this passage, we will ponder that question, even as we consider what we could call man's inhumanity to man. We see in Genesis 4, not only a record of a sin from the ancient past, but something 
that we are all still prone to ourselves today. To treat another person, a fellow image bearer, in a way that dishonors God to our shame. Let's turn and look at our passage. As we look at it today, we can divide it, I think, into three parts. Part one is verses one through eight, and it's a narrative, a historical record of how Cain rose up and slew his brother Abel. The second part of our passage, verses nine and 10, is a record of how the Lord confronted Cain with his sin. Then finally, the third part, verses 11 through 15, is a record of the consequences of that sin as a curse was placed by God upon Cain. Now, so let's walk through, if we, if we may, the three parts of our passage. We're going to begin with verses 1 through 8. The record of how Cain rose up and slew his brother Abel. And so it begins in verse 1 with the statement, And Adam knew Eve, his wife. And the language here of knowing in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is often a metaphor for intimacy. And so, especially the intimacy between a man and a woman, a husband and wife. And in the Bible, this term is often used, especially in relation to the conception of a child. And so in 1 Samuel 1.19, when the prophet Samuel was conceived, it says, And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And that has some significance because other places in the Bible, like in the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8, when it says those whom God foreknew, he predestinated, those whom he predestinated, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. When it says in the beginning of that chain, those whom he foreknew, he predestinated, doesn't mean simply he had factual knowledge of who the elect are, but from before the foundations of the earth, he had an intimate, God had an intimate knowledge, relationship with those who would be saved. Again, in this context, it's, it's more the human aspect and it's describing that intimacy. And then it goes on to say, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. This begins the account of two brothers, two Sons who were born to Adam and Eve. The first of these is named Cain. Scholars believe this name comes from the Hebrew word meaning to create. And so the name Cain means something like the created one or the formed one. The very fact that the woman was able to conceive, the man and woman were able to conceive a child together is in fact an astounding blessing given the circumstances. It could have been part of the curse that simply they'd not been able to conceive and the line of humanity might have ended. You'll remember that God in his wisdom had given a what we call a generative capacity to creation, to plant life and animal life, that future plants and animals would would come upon the earth not because of God's special creation of them, but because of the providential generative capacity that he had given uh, to both plants and and to animals. 
And of course, God in his wisdom had also given this generative capacity to the crown of his creation, to the image bearers, to man and woman. Remember all the way back in Genesis 1 and verse 28, God had blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And so in the pre-fallen world, they've been given this generative capacity. But we'll also recall that because of sin, we look back to Genesis 3, we saw this last week, that part of the curse, part of the, the, the consequences for sin would be that conception and the, the birthing of children would come only with great sorrow and pain. Look at chapter 3 and verse 16. Unto the woman I said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And so now we have the first instance of God keeping his promise, allowing the generative capacity, allowing mankind, even in the fallen state, to be fruitful and multiply, but also uh, that coming about uh, with sorrow. You'll also remember that God had declared back in Genesis 3 that there would be what he called enmity between the seed of the serpent that creature by whom Satan, who's called in Revelation 12, 9, the, that old serpent, the devil, had worked man's temptation and fall. There would be an enmity between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. As it says in Genesis 3, 15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. What we will see in Genesis 4 is the working out of this statement. A conflict will develop, will expand between Satan and humanity. Between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, between good and evil, between darkness and light, between wickedness and righteousness. And you'll probably also recall in Genesis 3.15, there was that passage we called the Proto-Evangelium, the first prophecy of the gospel, talking about the seed of the woman shall bruise thy head, speaking to the serpent, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Think about that for a second. God had given that prophecy. And now the first man is, is born of the union of Adam and Eve, and for all Satan knew, Cain, the firstborn of the woman, might have been the seed that would crush his head. Or perhaps it would have been the secondborn, Abel. And so what we, what we see here is the machinations of Satan to frustrate and, and to attack the seed of the woman. We might see this as Satan's attempt to slay in the cradle the seed of the woman and stave off his own head being crushed. At the birth of Cain, Moses says there in verse 1 that the woman declared, I have gotten a man from the Lord. I have gotten a man from the Lord. Some have suggested a hint here of the woman's boasting of her generative powers saying that she had created a man just as God 
created the first man in Genesis 2-7, forming him out of the dust of the earth and breathing life into him. And so at least one commentator I read said there is a hint of pride in her statement. This is a, now a fallen woman who thinks she brought about the birth of this child and, and doesn't give glory first to God. We very soon after this learn in verse 2 of the birth of a second son. And she again bare his brother Abel. The name Abel comes from a Hebrew word meaning fleeting or vaporous, a vapor. This term is used in the book of Job in Job 7 verse 16. And the very name of Abel anticipates the brevity, what will be the brevity of his life as he will be struck down as a young man apparently. But also that name of Abel might be placed uh, over all of us because all of us are experiencing the fleetingness of life, are we not? I've noted this recently. I always heard people say the older you get, the faster time goes, and boy, it's true. Every day flies by, every week, every month, every year. Life is short. We're only here a short period of time. All of us could be called able, fleeting. Our existence in this life is fleeting. Abel is described in verse 2 as a keeper of sheep. A keeper of sheep. One commentator noted, since animal husbandry at this time was not for food because humans were not meat eaters till after the flood, Abel's shepherding would have been to provide milk, wool, and skins. There is something about this vocation that has spiritual significance, I think. In the 23rd Psalm, David will describe the Lord himself as being like a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord Jesus Christ in John 10, 11 will declare, I am the good shepherd. And so there's a positive overtone, a godly overtone to the description of Abel as one who is a keeper of sheep. In the New Testament, we are told that Abel was a righteous man. In this passage that we're looking at in Genesis 4, it's really important to look at the handful of passages in the New Testament that shed light, greater light on what's happening here, help us to understand it, to interpret it. And we've stated before the old saying of Augustine, what is in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament revealed. And I'm going to share just a couple of verses as we work through the passage from the New Testament that I think are going to shed light on our passage. The first one that's helpful to look at is Matthew 23, verse 35. And it's Christ teaching. It's when he was attacking the Pharisees, calling them blind guides. And then he talks about how God has sent a line of righteous men and prophets and they have rejected them and killed many of them. And in Matthew 23, 35, it says, 
that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. And what he does there is he mentions the first godly man, Abel, who was stricken down. And then he mentions a man from the book that's recorded in the book of Second Chronicles, which would have been at the very end of the Old Testament, from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end, godly men who were stricken down. And the first one he mentions is Abel, but we should pay attention to the description of Abel. He says, from the blood of righteous Abel. Abel was a righteous man. Also in Hebrews 11, verse 4, the great faith hall of fame, it says, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Abel being dead yet speaks to us, but for now let's just focus on the fact that he's described in Hebrews 11.4 as being a righteous man. We might say he was a man justified by faith. Made righteous by faith. Abel was a believer. A regenerate man. Now regarding Cain, however, if you look at verse 2, it says, But Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now to be a tiller of the ground is also, according to the scriptures, a very noble calling. You might remember that when the Lord set mankind in the world that he gave him work to do and this is before the fall this is before sin work is not uh, a, a curse upon man in itself look at Genesis 2 and verse 15 and the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it and so tilling the ground and and dressing the the ground is is not in itself an inferior calling and so this was the task that, that, that Cain took up we also know that after the fall if we look at Genesis 3 17 through 19 that the tilling of the ground became more difficult and the ground was cursed and it did not yield as it had before the fall and so man had to labor and by the sweat of his face to eat his bread we get more light on Cain's spiritual state as we did about Abel from the New Testament. In particular, in the book of 1 John, in the third chapter, we read this in verses 11 and 12. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that ye should love one another. You should love one another, the command of Christ. Then, 1 John 3, 12, the apostle continues, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Abel was a righteous man. Cain, on the other hand, is described as 
one who was of that wicked one and whose works were evil. Somehow Satan had co-opted the firstborn Cain. Cain had aligned himself with the side of evil while his brother Abel aligned himself with the side of righteousness. This is also what we could call the first expression of a biblical motif, a biblical pattern that we see throughout the Old Testament. Some have called it the blessing of the secondborn or the blessing of the latterborn. In the days of Isaac and Rebekah, the covenant would continue not through the firstborn twin, Esau, but through the latterborn, the secondborn, Jacob. When Jacob had his 12 sons, the blessing of the covenant came not upon the firstborn, Reuben, but upon the latterborn, Joseph. When Samuel went looking for a king to anoint to replace wicked Saul, he was led by the Spirit to choose not the oldest son of Jesse, but little David, little ruddy David. And the Messiah would come not from the early-born seed of woman, but in the fullness of time, one latter-born, though he was the firstborn of Mary. A cosmic struggle is being depicted between two sides, two camps, two seed. We next read in verse 3 that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Look at verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Then in verse 4, the beginning of verse 4, we also read about Abel bringing an offering. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. Now, of course, many people over the years, interpreters have tried to understand why did God accept Abel's offering but not accept Cain's. Some have suggested that Cain's offering was rejected because it was not a blood sacrifice. Because he was offering merely uh, what he had grown from the ground. And it wasn't the sacrifice of something like a, a living sentient being, uh, uh, one of the sheep. And so they suggested his sacrifice was inferior. And that's why God accepted the sacrifice of Abel and not that of Cain. Others have said that Cain's offering was not sufficient because it came from the ground which had been cursed. Remember Genesis 3.17, cursed be the ground because of you, he says, God says to Adam. Neither of these explanations, however, appear in the text. And as biblical Christians, we should be careful, as Paul exhorted us, to not go beyond what is written and to be careful about reading into things our own eisegetical views rather than pulling out of the scriptures exegetically what is there. What is there in verse 4 is mention of the fact that Abel gave the firstlings of his flock 
and the fat thereof. This implies he gave the first and the best, the choicest portions. When you lived in the first century world, you didn't eat meat every day, and you wanted to give the best parts of the meat, you gave the fattest, the, the most nutrient-rich parts, and he took, the, he took the best parts, the choice parts, to give, and the first parts to give unto the Lord. And so that from the text is perhaps some indication of why the Lord was pleased to favor the offering of Abel. And as it says at the second half of verse 4, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Then look at the beginning of verse 5. But, Cain, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. Beyond the fact that it was the first and the choicest parts that Abel gave, in the end, however, perhaps the best explanation is simply that of God's sovereignty. God is God. And he does as he pleases. And we see here something of a, an indication of divine election, divine sovereign election. God chose the offering of Abel and he did not choose the offering of Cain. Think again about Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And so God simply chose the offering of Abel. Consider the description that Paul gives in Romans 9 of why God chose Jacob and not Esau. Romans 9 verse 11. For the children, talking about Jacob and Esau in the womb of their mother Rebekah. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. In the second half of verse 5, we see a twofold description of the reaction of Cain. It says in verse 5, And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. The first part of that says that Cain was filled with anger. Moses tells us that he was very wroth. Literally, the language there says he was very hot. He was, he was bothered. He was angry, hot. Second, it says his countenance fell. In Hebrew, it literally uses the plural form of the noun face. It says his faces fell. In Hebrew thought, the face was collectively a plural because the face was composed of all the parts, the eyes, the nose, the mouth. Every part of his face's countenance fell. Again, knowing from 1 John 3.12 that Cain 
was of that wicked one, we see in this a sinful reaction. As one commentator put it, Cain is a rebellious man who refuses to acknowledge God as one deserving the best of his harvest. And his response shows what this commentator calls his bent nature. The Lord then, in his mercy, takes up a spiritual investigation of Cain, even as he, as he did with Adam and Eve after the fall in Genesis 3. And so we see this spiritual investigation begin in verse 6. It says, And the Lord said unto Cain, two questions, first, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? God responds perfectly correspondingly to the two reactions of Cain. And we'll notice that this is a preventative intervention of the Lord. Why should Cain begrudge the sovereign choice of God? Why should Cain begrudge God's acceptance of that which is pleasing to him, his doing of that which is pleasing to him? As the Apostle Paul will also write in Romans 9 about those who challenge God's sovereignty and election in Romans 9.20, Nay, but O man, who art thou? that repliest against God, shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? In verse 7, the Lord then adds a third question, and followed by a statement. If you look at verse 7, he says to Cain, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? Literally, the language here is, if you do well, will your fallen faces or face, will your fallen countenance not be lifted up? And this was from the Lord, a gracious offer of self-acknowledgement, of repentance, of restoration, of reconciliation. And the Lord also in his mercy lays out before Cain in a statement a warning about what will happen if, if he does not repent. He hasn't yet slain his brother. The Lord is intervening, giving him a chance before he does something wicked, speaking to him. And so he continues and says, And if thou doest not well, Sin lieth at the door. Many modern translations are now rendering this verse. Sin crouches at the door. Sin lies at the door. And the idea there is like a predator ready to pounce upon an unsuspecting victim. In 1 Peter 5.8, the apostle Peter wrote to believers and he said, Be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Sin is lying at the door, crouching at the door, like a lion ready to pounce. And so the Lord is giving a gracious warning, and he, he continues, verse 
7, and unto thee shall be his desire. In other words, evil has its desire. The devil, Satan, that old serpent, has his desire. But he says, and thou shalt rule over him. The language here is similar to the description of that warped relationship between man and woman caused by sin in a fallen world back in Genesis 3.16. Just as the woman would want to usurp the man's place, but the man would use his power to rule over it, there's a similar language here. Sin will want to overpower you, but it's an exhortation. You must persist and rule over it. As one commentator put it, Cain has a choice to make. Will he follow the ways of Jehovah or will he follow the ways of sin? This puts before our eyes a description of what we call the struggle, the civil war that exists in the hearts of all men in this fallen world due to the remaining corruptions that are in us, even if we're saved. There are remaining corruptions within us. The Apostle Paul will write in Galatians 5.17, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things ye would. And likewise, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, famous Statement he makes, verses 18 and 19, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. And that's the, that's the civil war. In all of our hearts, even we're believers, remaining corruptions within us. And the Lord is giving this statement to Cain. The first time it's being revealed to Cain, Cain, sin is ready to entice you, but you must rule over it. What does Cain do? Well, sadly, he succumbs. In verse 8, it says, with just minimal description, and Cain talked with Abel, his brother. We must presume that what this means is he acted deceptively and he led his brother off to the fields away from the eyes of their parents, but not from the eyes of God. And then we read in verse 8 where it says, And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. The book of Genesis, as we've seen, tells us many wonderful first things. The first creation of light. The first uh, plants. The first beautiful, wonderful creatures that populate this world. The first man. It tells us so many beautiful first things. But Genesis also tells us many terrible first things. It tells us how 
Cain, in his unjust anger and jealousy, took the precious life of righteous Abel. How Cain broke the moral law of God, broke what will be revealed to the people of God through Moses at Sinai in Exodus 20:13 is the sixth uh, commandment, thou shalt not kill. And by the way, the moral law precedes the articulation of the moral law at Sinai. It was there in the beginning. And so Cain trespassed against the moral law of God. The second part of our text Verses 9 and 10. The Lord confronts Cain. Again, we see a pattern from Genesis 3. Just as when Adam and Eve sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit, God came and he walked, remember, in the cool of the day, and he found out Adam's sin. So in Genesis 4, God comes and he finds out Cain's sin. We can run from God, but we cannot hide from him. As Moses said to the Israelites in Numbers 32, 23, and be sure your sin will find you out. To Adam, God said in Genesis 3, 9, where art thou? Remember that. To Cain, he says in uh, Chapter 4 and verse 9. Where is Abel thy brother? Where is Abel thy brother? Once again, recall what I said in the beginning. Genesis 3 shows us the breaking of what we call the first table of the law. The first four commandments. No gods before God, no graven images, no taking God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those are man's fundamental duties towards God. And Adam and Eve broke the first table of the law in Genesis 3 by listening to the serpent and not listening to God, having a God before God. But in Genesis 4, it's a record of man breaking the second table of the law. Begins with the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Proceeds with the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. Seventh, you shall not commit adultery. Eighth, you shall not steal. Ninth, you shall not bear false witness. Tenth, you shall not covet. There's a violation of the second table of the law in Genesis 4. And what this tells us is that fallen man, in truth, is guilty of trespassing against the moral law of God. We sin against God and we sin against our fellow man. Cain famously responded. If you look at verse 9, he said, he lies, first of all, so he, he bears false witness. He said, I know not. And then he said, am I my brother's keeper? One commentator said of this question, he said, this is a figure of speech used here to emphasize a sense of indignant refusal. What a bold, defiant, and rebellious response. 
Instead of fearing God, Cain questions God. And of course the irony is that the answer to his question, am I my brother's keeper, is a positive one. Yes, he is. The same commentator notes that if you look at Genesis 4, 1 through 15, you read over it, you'll find that seven times in this passage, Abel is called brother in verses 2, 8, 9, 10, and 11. But the term is never used of Cain. The Lord then confronts Cain with another question in verse 10. Look at verse 10. And he said, what hast thou done? What have you done? Did God ask this because he was ignorant of what had happened? Of course not. He does not ask to furnish his own knowledge, but he asked this question to prick the conscience of Cain. This is the question of a righteous God to sinful man. What hast thou done? He continues to ask that very question today and through the inscripturation of his word, he asks it of us. What hast thou done? The Lord continues in verse 10. And says, the voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. The Lord Jesus Christ, again in Matthew 23, verses 34 and 35, will speak of Abel as being something like the first martyr. In Matthew 23 and verse 34, he talks about how God had sent the prophets, the wise men and the scribes, and yet they had killed them and crucified them and scourged them in their synagogues, persecuted them. And then he says again from the blood of righteous uh, Abel under the blood of Zacharias they had rejected the godly men sent to them aside from the rejection of God's servants we also see here God's high view of the value of all human life after the flood God will say to Noah in Genesis 9 6 whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God may he man. It's a really important passage because what it tells us is even after the fall, man has an inherent value, he's an image bearer. And anyone who has the audacity to take the life of an image bearer must deal with the justice of God. The third part of our passage then, verses 11 to 15, is the curse upon Cain. And what we see here is another lesson, as we saw in Genesis 3, about how sin always has consequences. Sin against God has consequences. We saw that in Genesis 3. And so does sin against man. And we'll notice, first of all, that a curse is placed upon Cain, just like a curse was laid upon the serpent in Genesis 3.14, and a curse was laid upon the ground in Genesis 3.17. And so the Lord says to Cain, And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. The curse upon Cain is twofold. We're told, first of all, in verse 12, When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. And so what we see here basically is a, 
a further erosion of the fertility and profundity of the ground. The erosion of that is described in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, but now to Cain, there's even further damage done. And then the second consequence is laid out in the second part of verse 12. Cain will be a fugitive and a vagabond. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. Isn't it interesting that rootlessness is described here as being a curse upon man? Rootlessness, being a fugitive and a vagabond. Isn't it interesting how many people today go through life and never put down roots? They don't live in the same place. Pursue the same vocation. Remain in related to the same people or the same church for long periods of time. The days of Cain, this was part of the curse. Being a fugitive and a vagabond. In despair, Cain says in verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Although there is not any indication here of what we could call evangelical repentance, Cain does express his pain and despair under the weight of the consequences of his own sin. Ponder that statement. My punishment is greater than I can bear. That cry still rises up today in this fallen world. Just as Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden and had to go east and the, the cherubim were placed there, if you look back at Genesis 3.24, now Cain is also driven even further away. He's driven e e even further out. In verse 14, he says to the Lord, Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. God made himself hidden from Cain. That was the worst punishment. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And then we find out that his greatest fear, though, at the end of there, verse 14, was that his life would be taken. He didn't care about the life of Abel, but he cared about his own life. And it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. Apparently, he was worried that his own parents, who were the only other people alive at this time, would kill him because of what he, what he had done to Abel. Or that their future offspring would, out of vengeance, take his life. In response to this, the passage ends, verse 15, with a description of the Lord's response to, to Cain's dilemma. And we read here, verse 15, And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And what is revealed to us here is a twofold gracious action by the Lord, even to sinful Cain. The first part of this 
is the Lord pronounces a sevenfold vengeance upon any who would take Cain's life. Sevenfold means a perfect amount of vengeance, a perfect amount of justice upon anyone who would take the life of Cain. And secondly, he places a protective mark. He sets a mark upon Cain. We don't know what that mark was. Many people have speculated about it. We don't want to go beyond what is written. We don't know what it was. But that mark served two purposes. First of all, it warned other men from taking vengeance into their own hands. As Paul will later write in Romans 12, 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. But secondly, it also gave assurance even to despicable, sinful Cain that God would put this mark of protection upon his life. We're friends, we've worked through the passage. I know we're over time. But let me hasten just to sketch out, if I can, briefly, a few applications. Hopefully, with the help of the Spirit, you've, you've come, up, come up with your own applications. But let me just share just a handful with you. First of all, we are reminded by this passage that we have a duty both to God, that's the vertical aspect of our lives. Man will never be content unless he is in a right relationship with God. He can have great relationship with family and friends. But if his relationship with God is distorted, things will never be right in his life. But by the same token, we must also have a proper relationship with our fellow man. If you're out of sorts with people in your family, if you're out of sorts with people in your church, if you're out of sorts with people in your community, your relationship with God is going to be distorted. It's going to be messed up. We have a duty be rightly related to God. We have a duty to be rightly related to man. And we must not slough off that duty to man as Cain did saying, am I my brother's keeper? What did the Lord Jesus Christ teach in what we call the great commandment recorded in Matthew 22 and Mark 12? When he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He quoted two scripture verses, one from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second from Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. And remember also that in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, Christ said, You have heard in old times people say you shall not kill. But I say to you that whoever becomes angry unjustly with his brother is in danger of the judgment. We have a duty to be in right relationship with God and a right relationship with man. Secondly, we are reminded that our sin will always find us out. God will seek us out and he will ask us the question like he did to Cain. What hast thou done? Thirdly, we are reminded that sin has consequences. And if those consequences fall upon us as they fall upon us, 
Our response will be like that of Cain. My punishment is too much for me. Fourthly, however, and finally, we are also reminded by this passage of God's gracious provision to us even in the midst of our sinfulness. In fact, one might even be so bold to say that we all have a mark. We all have the stain of sin upon us that can only be removed by the blood of a righteous one. Let me share one last New Testament passage that sheds light on Genesis 4. It's Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24, where Paul wrote this to Christians. He said, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. A righteous one has come and poured out his blood for our sins so that we may be made right through him. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks today for thy word, for this ancient record of what transpired, and for our contemporary, not only understanding of the historical record, but understanding our own hearts and our own needs before thee. And so use this word, O God, today to draw us closer to thyself. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.